Volume 1, Chapter 10, Part 3 of A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by Francois Pierre Guillaume Guizot. Chapter 10, Part 3. The burdensome inheritance left by the king who had just died fell into hands too feeble to support it. Edward II was twenty-three years of age when he succeeded his father. The latter had had six sons, of whom three only survived him. The young king had already shown signs of frivolity and obstinacy which augured the misfortunes of his reign. Brought up from childhood with a young Aquitanian, Pierre's Gaveston, he had conceived for this companion so strong an affection that the king, his father, had been alarmed thereat and had on several occasions banished the young favourite. At the death of Edward I, Gaveston was in exile, but at the news of the accession of his young master, he hastened to him, and the first act of the king was to confer upon him the earldom of Cornwall, which had previously been deemed a position sufficiently conspicuous for princes of the royal blood. Edward did not content himself with this. While he was pretending to carry on a campaign in Scotland, the great officers of the crown were changed. The Lord Treasurer, the Bishop of Lichfield, was even deprived of his property and cast into prison. In spite of the oath which the old king had exacted from his son, the latter had returned to London to inter his father, leaving Bruce free to pursue his successes. Gaveston, who had lately married Margaret, a niece of the king, was nominated regent of the kingdom in the month of January 1308 by the king, who went over to France to marry the princess Isabel, according to Foisard, one of the most beautiful women in the world. King Philip the Fair had just caused the dissolution of the Order of Templars in France, an iniquitous proceeding, inspired rather by the prince's greed than by the offences of the order. Philip thereby obtained for the King of England the dowry promised to the latter, and persuaded him, without great difficulty, to withhold his protection from the Templars established in England. A short time afterwards they were prosecuted. Edward set sail on the 7th of February to return to England, he was accompanied by a numerous suite of French noblemen, at the head of whom were two uncles of the Queen. Gaveston came to meet the King, and as soon as Edward perceived him, forgetting his young wife and his noble followers, he threw himself into the arms of the favourite, embracing him and calling him brother, to the great indignation of Isabel and all the beholders. Their indignation was increased when they saw Gaveston decked out with all the jewels which the King of France had recently given Edward. The discontent reached its height when, at the ceremony of the coronation, which took place with great splendour on the 14th of February, Piers Gaveston, as the people persisted in calling him, in spite of his elevation to the earldom of Cornwall, was entrusted with the task of carrying before the King the crown of St. Edward, to the exclusion of the highest nobleman of the kingdom, who were all anxious for this honour. 
Isabel had already begun to complain to her father of her husband and the favourite when the barons came to the king four days after his coronation. Sire, they said, send back this stranger who has no business here. The king promised to give his reply on the assembling of Parliament after Easter. Meanwhile, he endeavoured to lessen the resentment of the nobleman towards his friend. But Piers was most imprudent, frivolous and vain. He loved to make a show of his talent for chivalrous exercises, and threw successively from their horses in several tournaments the earls of Lancaster, Hereford, Pembroke and Warren, whose wounded pride was added to the many serious causes of resentment against him. On the assembling of Parliament, the annoyance of the barons was so great that the king was constrained to give way and to banish Gaveston. He loaded him with presents on his departure, giving him all the jewels which he had received from Queen Isabel, and accompanied him as far as Bristol to bid him farewell. Gaveston was believed to be in Aquitaine when news came that the king had appointed him Governor of Ireland and that he had just established himself there with a degree of splendour almost regal. The king longed to recall his favourite. He lavished favours upon the great lords in order to win them over, and, when he had been relieved by the Pope of the oath which he had sworn never to recall Gaveston to England, he sent for his friend, and went as far as Chester to meet him, publicly announcing that the Earl of Cornwall had been unjustly banished and that justice demanded a fresh examination of his conduct. On the other hand, the barons declared that the king had violated his oath and would not scruple to break all those which he had sworn for the maintenance of the public liberties. The discontent was increasing. The queen complained of the desertion of her husband. The Countess of Cornwall was representing to her brother, the Earl of Gloucester, Gaveston's unworthy conduct towards her. The king and his favourite did not heed the storm which was about to burst. Feasts, dances and tournaments succeeded each other without intermission at the court. The king's funds, meanwhile, had run low, and in the month of August 1311 he found himself compelled to convene Parliament at Westminster. The barons came, discontented but resolute. Old Archbishop Winchelsea had exhorted them to deliver the kingdom from the power of the favourite. The Earl of Lincoln, when dying, had sent for his son-in-law, the Earl of Lancaster. Do not abandon England to the king and the pope, he said. Do as the ancient barons did, and stand firmly by your privileges. Scarcely had the barons arrived at Westminster, when they renewed the stipulations of the mad parliament of Oxford they demanded the formation of a temporal council entrusted with the task of providing for the government of the kingdom. One of the new concessions forced from the king was that he should convoke Parliament at least once a year. The barons had brought with them their men-at-arms. Edward II signed all that they demanded and Gaveston was once more obliged to leave the country. The king then proceeded to the north, and was busy raising an army when his favourite suddenly appeared at his side. Such daring was beyond endurance. The Earl of Lancaster, the king's cousin, came unexpectedly upon Edward. The king only had time to escape with Gaveston, leaving the queen in the hands of the barons, who treated her with great respect. 
the king and his friend had set out in a little bark they landed at scarborough and piers shut himself up in the fortress there while the king proceeded to york in the hope of joining his army but the barons had already set out for scarborough being besieged in the castle gaveston surrendered on the seventeenth of may to the earl of pembroke and lord henry percy who promised to spare his life and then undertook to take him to his castle of wallingford the little band started on their journey but when they arrived at deddington the earl of pembroke left his prisoner to go and see his wife who was in the neighbourhood on the morning of the nineteenth gaveston received orders to dress himself at once he descended into the courtyard and found that his guards had been changed the earl of warwick the black dog of the ardennes as the favourite called him when jesting with the king had arrived during the night the prisoner was tied on the back of a mule and led to warwick castle the earl of lancaster was there piers was accustomed to call this nobleman the old boar but he now threw himself at his feet begging for mercy the judges were inflexible he was hastily tried and being condemned the unlucky piers was conducted to blacklow hill between warwick and coventry where a scaffold had been erected the executioners hesitated for a moment to accomplish so horrible a deed you have caught the fox if you let him go you will have to give chase to him again cried a voice from among the crowd and the favourite's head fell he was only thirty-three years of age while edward the second was mourning for his murdered friend robert bruce was slowly conquering scotland twice had the king of england attempted an expedition in support of the power which was slipping from his hands and twice he had returned without result the authority of bruce was being established everywhere in his country the castles of perth jedburgh dunbar edinburgh were in his hands he was besieging the fortress of stirling when the governor sir philip mowbray contrived to make his appeals for succour reach the king edward aroused himself for a moment from his natural indolence and raised a large army to march against scotland he started from berwick on the eleventh of june thirteen thirteen the forces of the king of england amounted it is said to nearly a hundred thousand men while they were marching with their banners flying the sun which was glistening upon the armour and the lances appeared to inundate the country with a flood of light king robert was concealed in the forests with an army of forty thousand men nearly all on foot awaiting the enemy and preparing barriers which were intended to check the onslaught of the english troops on the only spot open to attack on the morning of the twenty third of june thirteen thirteen the two armies met near bannockburn the english had hastened their march and had arrived in some disorder in front of the scottish army lord clifford who attempted an ambuscade was repulsed by randolph earl of moray nephew of king robert and one of his best knights the king himself with a golden crown on his helmet was marching slowly along the line of his troops a relative of the earl of hereford's sir henry bowen sprang forward against the scottish traitor reckoning upon throwing him by the weight of his horse alone bruce being mounted upon one of the small horses of the country the king did not expect the shock he turned however with great skill 
and Bowen's lance passed close by his side without inflicting any injury upon him. Raising himself up in his stirrups and displaying his gigantic figure, he struck the rash Englishman a terrible blow with his battle-axe. The helmet was shattered by his powerful arm, and Sir Henry Bowen, whose skull was fractured, was carried off by his horse, dead. Bruce returned slowly to the spot where the greater part of his forces was concentrated. While his friends were surrounding him, reproaching him for running so great a risk, the Scottish hero was looking sorrowfully at his notched axe and laughingly answered, I have spoilt my new battle-axe. The night had been passed in prayer in the Scottish camp and in feasting and debauchery by the English. King Edward had not expected a battle and held his forces assembled in such a manner as to render any manoeuvres impossible. At daybreak, the young king was astonished at the good order observed in the Scottish ranks. Do you think they will fight? he asked of his marshal, Sir Ingletram Dumfreville. At the same moment, the abbot Maurice d'Anchivray appeared before the Scottish troops holding a crucifix in his hand. All bent their knees, all uncovered their heads. They are asking for mercy, cried Edward. Umpreville smiled bitterly. Of God, not of us, sire, said he. These men will win the battle or die at their posts. So be it, replied the king, as he gave the signal for the attack. The struggle was furious from the commencement. The earls of Gloucester and Hereford sprang towards the Scottish infantry, which remained firm. Their long lances withstood the onslaught of the English knights. Randolph was still advancing with his best regiment. Keith was attacking with five hundred mounted men-at-arms. The English archers, who could not fight at close quarters, and were trampled underfoot by the horses. Banners were torn, and lances and swords were shattered to pieces. The feet of the combatants were slipping in the blood. The majority of the English began to hesitate. They fly, they fly, cried the Scotch. At the same moment, a loud noise was heard behind them upon the hill. The camp followers and the sick and the wounded soldiers, excited by the ardour of the struggle, were descending in a mass towards the scene of action. The English imagined themselves attacked by a fresh army. A disorderly retreat had begun when Robert Bruce, charging with his reserve, decided the fate of the day beyond the possibility of a doubt. The Earl of Gloucester was killed while attacking Edward Bruce, Robert's brother. Clifford and twenty-seven other barons fell by the king's side. The Earl of Pembroke seized the bridle of Edward's horse and dragged him away from the battlefield. Sir Giles d'Argentine accompanied him out of the crowd, then retraced his steps, exclaiming, It is not my custom to fly, and was killed by Bruce's soldiers. Never had a victory been more complete. The fortress of Stirling surrendered immediately. The Earl of Hereford, who had shut himself up in Bothwell Castle, offered to capitulate, and was exchanged for the wife, the sister, and the daughter of the King of Scotland, who had been detained for several years in England. There still remained a great deal of territory to conquer, but the work of Edward I was destroyed, and Scotland was no longer a dependency of England. Edward Bruce's ambition was not satisfied. He had assisted his brother in conquering a kingdom, and he now wished to secure a crown for himself. 
On the 23rd of May, 1315, while England was beginning to feel the miseries of a famine, which was soon to be followed by a plague, he landed at Carrickfergus in Ireland, at the head of 6,000 men. He was soon joined by a large number of Irish chiefs, and they then proceeded to ravage the territory of the English colonists there, pillaging and burning the towns. At length he caused himself to be crowned King of Ireland on the 2nd of May, 1316. His brother Robert came to his assistance, and, in spite of the resistance of the English, who held Dublin and several other important towns, the invading army overran the whole of Ireland. The northern portion of the country had been completely subjugated by Edward Bruce when King Robert was called back to his kingdom in consequence of the incursions of the English. Nineteen pitched battles besides numberless skirmishes had been fought and had exhausted the resources of the rash conqueror when, on the 5th of October, 1318, Edward Bruce was at length defeated and killed at Far near Dundalk, and the little body of Scots who escaped returned to Scotland. The death of one man had sufficed to overthrow the slender edifice which for three years he had been striving to raise. The independence of Scotland was more firmly established than the conquest of Ireland. Berwick had at length fallen into the power of the Scotch. King Edward II resolved, in 1319, to make a fresh effort to regain that town and to recommence his attempts against Scotland. On the 1st of September, he laid siege to Berwick by land and by sea. But while he was detained there by the obstinate resistance of the Lord Steward of Scotland, Douglas and Randolph, King Robert's most faithful companions, had crossed the borders into England with 15,000 men, carrying their ravages as far as York, so that Edward was obliged to abandon Berwick and march against the invaders of his own dominions. The Scots escaped from him and re-entered their country. A truce of two years was concluded, and in 1323, after several renewals of hostilities, it was followed by a new treaty which restored peace to the two countries. Not, however, without leaving in England a feeling of animosity against the little country whose proud independence of spirit all their power had not been able to subdue. King Edward had not taken warning by the fate of Piers Gaveston. He had become attached to a young man at his court, Hugh Le Dispenser, who had been placed at his side by his cousin, the Earl of Lancaster, and whom he soon elevated to the dignity of Chamberlain. A short time afterwards, he married him to Eleanor de Clare, sister of the young Earl of Gloucester, who had been killed at Bannockburn. She brought him an enormous estate upon the borders of Wales. His aunt, Margaret de Clare, had enriched Gaveston in the same manner. Le Despenser was an Englishman, and Edward had perhaps hoped to enjoy his friendship in peace, but the benefits which he heaped upon his new favourite soon excited the jealousy of the barons. At their head was the Earl of Lancaster, who was enraged at seeing preferred to himself a man who had formerly been a member of his own household. An abuse of the royal authority for the benefit of the royal favourite soon furnished a pretext to the great nobleman for resisting the king's authority. They armed their vassals, 
the lands of the dispensers were pillaged and their castles destroyed in 1321. Lancaster joined the insurrection, swearing not to lay down his arms before banishing the favourite. They advanced as far as St Albans, and the Earl sent a messenger to the King to announce the conditions of peace. Edward was as timid as he was stubborn. He defended his friends as well as he was able, and declared that they could not be condemned without a trial. The barons marched towards London, and took up their quarters in the suburbs. Parliament was convened at Westminster, and with their arms in their hands, the Earl of Lancaster and his friends accused Hugh Le Dispenser and his father of having usurped the royal authority, kept the king away from his faithful barons, and illegally imposed taxes, etc. At length they demanded that they should be banished. The bishops protested that the sentence was irregular. The king gave in. The two Le Dispensers left England, and the barons became so arrogant that Queen Isabel, when making a pilgrimage to Canterbury, was refused admittance to Leeds Castle in the county of Kent, although that fortress belonged to the crown. The governor's wife, Lady Badlesmere, even caused several arrows to be shot at the royal suite, and several of the queen's attendants were killed. This insolence enraged the king. He punished Lord and Lady Badlesmere, and at the same time recalled the dispensers. Lancaster rallied round him all his friends, and entered into a correspondence with the Scots, who promised to invade the northern provinces. This negotiation had no other effect than to crush the popularity of the Earl of Lancaster, the Scots being so much detested. The king had already attacked and defeated the Earl of Hereford and his ally, Roger Mortimer, and the latter was a prisoner in the tower. Hereford had joined Lancaster, and the king was marching against them. The two earls had raised the siege of Titchnell Castle and were retreating before the royal army when at Boroughbridge, on the borders of the Ure, Lancaster found the governors of York and Carlisle with a body of troops prepared to dispute his passage. Hereford was killed upon the bridge and during the retreat which followed, Lancaster was made a prisoner. He was brought back in triumph to his castle of Pontefract and the king soon joined him there. Lancaster foresaw the fate which awaited him. Lord, he said on being captured, kneeling before a crucifix, I surrender to thee and throw myself upon thy mercy. His conviction was certain, his treason being flagrant. Lancaster was condemned by six earls and six barons. The people insulted him while he was being led to the scaffold. He lifted his pinioned hands towards heaven. Heavenly King, have mercy on me, he cried, for the King of Earth has abandoned me. He was beheaded on the 22nd of March, 1322. Fourteen bannerets and as many knights also suffered the extreme penalty. Mortimer was condemned to imprisonment for life. The dispensers enriched themselves with the spoils taken from the victims. The father was created Earl of Winchester, and the enmity of the people towards the favourites was increased by the compassion which the condemned men inspired. It was found necessary to forbid the people to kneel before the portrait of the Earl of Lancaster in St Paul's Cathedral, and rumours of miracles which had taken place at his tomb were spread throughout England, 
as had formerly been the case with Simon of Montfort, Earl of Leicester. Roger Mortimer had succeeded in escaping from his prison, probably not without having held some communication with Queen Isabel, who resided at the Tower during his captivity. He was in France and had just entered the service of Charles the Beautiful. The Queen was enraged at the execution of his uncle, the Earl of Lancaster. When her husband came back from the expedition in the north, she received him haughtily and manifested towards the dispensers the same hostility which she had formerly displayed towards Piers Gaveston. The King of France, Charles the Beautiful, seized the pretext of the grievances of Isabel to take possession of the greater number of the towns and castles belonging to Edward. The latter, in return, seized upon all the property which the Queen held in England, declaring that she should possess nothing while in communication with his enemies. Isabel immediately proposed to act as mediator between her brother and her husband. The weak king fell into the trap and allowed her to depart. She was received in France with open arms and soon informed her husband that he would have to come and do homage to the king of France for his duchy of Aquitaine. Edward was preparing to start when he was detained in England in consequence of indisposition. The dispensers, who did not dare to accompany him into France, but who would not lose sight of him, persuaded the weak monarch to cede Guerne and Ponthur to his son, Prince Edward, the King of France promising to content himself with receiving homage from the young man. The Prince of Wales therefore followed his mother into France. But in vain did the King await the return of his wife and son. The Queen was continually delaying. At length she haughtily declared, that her life was not safe in England, and that the dispensers were plotting against her and her son. King Edward, astounded, defended himself as well as he was able, causing all the prelates in England to write and reassure the Queen, but she would not be convinced, and when King Charles the Beautiful, tired no doubt of the bad conduct of Isabel and of the injunctions which he received from England, told his sister that he could no longer keep her at his court, she set out surrounded by the knights who had embraced her cause. The Earl of Kent, her husband's brother, D'Artois, John of Hainault, and still accompanied by her favourite, Mortimer, she embarked at Dor with a little army of Frenchmen and Brabatines to land at Orswell in Suffolk on the 24th of September. Scarcely had she set foot upon English soil with her son when, in spite of all the damaging rumours which were afloat concerning her, a large number of knights flocked round her standard. The people were tired of the weakness of King Edward, of the avidity of his favourites, and of the disorder which reigned over the kingdom. When Edward sent and asked for the assistance of the citizens of London, they replied that by their charters they were not obliged to follow him into battle, but that they would be faithful to the king, the queen, and the princes by closing their gates to the foreigners. Edward was alone with the two dispensers, the Chancellor Baldock and a few knights. Scarcely had he set out for Wales when the people of London rose, murdered the Bishop of Exeter, who had been elevated by the King to the position of Governor, and sent his head to the Queen. Edward had halted at Gloucester, whence he had sent old dispenser to defend Bristol. The citizens revolted, and Dispenser was compelled to surrender at the discretion of Isabel. 
she immediately caused him to be executed as a traitor, and the old man's head was exposed to the public sight at Winchester. Hugh Le Dispenser and Chancellor Baldock, as well as the king, were wandering in the county of Glamorgan, where they had been shipwrecked, after having ineffectually endeavoured to take refuge in Ireland. Le Dispenser and the Chancellor were recognised and arrested. The king immediately surrendered to his enemies, having decided to share the fate of those who loved him, and who were already condemned in anticipation. Baldock soon died of ill-treatment, and it was necessary to hasten the execution of Hugh Le Dispenser. He had refused to take any food since his arrest, and he was half dead when he was dragged to the scaffold to suffer the same fate as his father. The Earl of Arundel, who had been at the head of the judges who condemned Lancaster, was beheaded with two of his friends, and their property was given to Mortimer. The Queen had arrived in London, Parliament had just met, and, on the 7th of January, 1327, the Bishop of Hereford, Adam Orleton, Isabel's adviser and able agent, asked this question of the Assembly. Should the father be re-established upon the throne, or ought the son to replace him? He dwelt upon the weakness, the bad deeds, the treacherous acts of King Edward, and asked the lords to reply on the morrow to his question. The decision was not doubtful. While the barons were pronouncing, in the great hall of Westminster, the fall of Edward the Second, King of England, the people of London, assembled in crowds at the doors of the palace, loudly demanded his immediate condemnation. Several bishops alone had the courage to speak in favour of the unhappy king, who had not seen a sword drawn nor a bow stretched in his defence. They were insulted, and the Bishop of Rochester was trampled in the mud on leaving the palace. The young prince was proclaimed king by the public voice, and all the peers who were present swore allegiance to him on the spot. When the Queen was informed of the success of all her schemes, she cried bitterly. Alas, she said, they have deposed my husband the King. Parliament has overstepped its authority. These hypocritical tears did not deceive anybody. The young Prince Edward alone was touched at them. Do not be afraid, mother, said he. I will never deprive my father of his crown. A deputation was therefore sent to the poor King, who was a prisoner in Kenilworth Castle. When Edward the Second perceived the Bishop of Hereford at the head of the ambassadors, he fell to the ground, stricken with grief. The judge, who had condemned the two dispensers, Sir William Trussell, advanced in the name of the Parliament, and, taking his turn to speak, told Edward that he was no longer King of England. At the same moment, Sir Thomas Blount, steward of the royal household, broke his baton, renouncing his allegiance to the king. Edward listened without complaining, and without urging anything on his own behalf, simply thanked the Parliament for having recognised the rights of his son. On the 24th of January, 1327, King Edward III was proclaimed throughout the kingdom. Edward II was, according to the decree of Parliament, deposed from the throne by the Lords and Commons, and the power was entrusted to Queen Isabel, who was to administer the affairs of the kingdom for her son, then only fifteen years of age. Isabel was herself under the influence of Mortimer. 
Edward II being dethroned, could not hope to live long. The power of the favourite over the Queen became a matter for alarm. Several monks preached against him. The Earl of Lancaster, to whose keeping the deposed King had been entrusted, seemed to have conceived a feeling of pity for his prisoner, so the latter was removed to another place. Being consigned to the charge of Lord Berkeley and Sir John Maltravers, he was taken to Bristol, where also the people began to be touched at his fate. Two scoundrels who had been sent to him as jailers dragged him out half-naked and took him to Corfe Castle. The poor king asked to be allowed to dress himself. Some dirty water was brought to him in a helmet. Tears rolled down his cheeks. I have some purer water in spite of you, he said. A crown of dry herbs had been placed upon his head. At length, moving from place to place, the dethroned monarch was brought to Berkeley Castle on the River Severn, where an attempt was made to poison him, but without success. At length, one night, the governor of the castle being away, piercing cries were heard, and immediately afterwards all was silent again. The inhabitants of the neighbourhood shuddered on hearing them. On the morrow, when the doors were opened, the death of Edward II was announced, and the country people were admitted to view the corpse of him who had been their king. The expression of agony which rested upon the once handsome features of the unhappy monarch terrified all who saw it. The body was taken to the Abbey of Gloucester and buried soon afterwards, but the people went in crowds to the tomb of this king, whom no one had defended during his lifetime. The offerings made in his honour at the convent were so considerable that the monks were enabled to add an aisle to their church. This unfortunate monarch, so weak and so frivolous, consistent only in his affection, so harshly abandoned and so cruelly murdered, was not yet forty-three years of age when he expired on the 21st of September, 1327. End of chapter 10, part 3